Hi, this is Steve Nerlick. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, episode 99, Same Old. With podcasting having been around for over 20 years, and astronomy podcasting having been around for just as long, it's hard not to cringe a little when some over-enthused podcaster starts going on about Lagrange points as though they're some new exciting thing that no one's ever talked about before. I mean, come on. Dear Cheap Astronomy, I still don't get Lagrange points, particularly L4 and L5. Most explanations of Lagrange points are a bit artificial. For example... Explanatory diagrams show Earth's orbit as a perfect circle around the Sun, which isn't right, it's really an ellipse. So half the problem with understanding Lagrange points may be that the visual analogies people use aren't perfect, and the other half of the problem may be that Lagrange points were first identified through some pretty high-level mathematics, which may remain the best way to really explain them. But let's see how we go. Lagrange points are often described as points where different gravitational influences reach equilibrium in a simple orbital system, for example the Earth orbiting the Sun. The idea of gravitational forces reaching equilibrium does make sense for L1, which lies between the Earth and the Sun, and hence is at a point where the gravitational pull of both massive bodies in opposite directions equalises. But it's a harder thing to grasp in the cases of L's 2 to 5. So a better way to think about the whole problem may be to consider why we care about Lagrange points. And that is all about spacecraft positioning. So for example, the James Webb Space Telescope needs a place from where it can observe the universe, but that also has to be a place where it can send data back to Earth and receive pointing instructions from Earth. While an Earth orbit worked well for the Hubble Space Telescope, James Webb is an infrared telescope, and hence needs to keep itself cool, which it will achieve by keeping its sun shield always facing the sun. That would be very hard to do if it orbited the Earth every 95 minutes the way that the Hubble does. It's a much easier thing to achieve in a solar orbit, but then it will have to be a solar orbit that remains equidistant from the Earth. If it doesn't keep pace with the Earth, its orbit is either going to lag or advance, meaning the radio delay between it and the Earth may become minutes long, and there will be times when it's on the other side of the Sun, which will put it completely out of contact with the Earth. So how do you put a spacecraft in a solar orbit where it will keep pace with the Earth? This is not hard in principle. All you need is for that spacecraft to adopt the same orbital velocity as the Earth, which is largely a matter of tweaking, since it will already have a very similar orbital velocity to the Earth, having been launched from the Earth. But remember the Earth's orbit is elliptical, so it speeds up around aphelion and slows down around perihelion, And while a small-mass spacecraft would naturally orbit the centre of the Sun, the much larger-mass Earth really orbits the Earth-Sun barycentre, 
which is about 500 kilometres out from the centre of the Sun. So with all that going on, a solar-orbiting spacecraft would need to regularly adjust its speed and trajectory if it's to keep pace with Earth. On the other hand, though, you could just fly it to a Lagrange point, which will do most of that work for you. Lagrange Point 2, or L2, is the chosen destination for the James Webb, which is on the other side of the Earth from the Sun. So, being further out, it's a bit cooler. Plus, any object at that L2 point orbits the combined mass of both the Sun and the Earth. So, even though it's in a higher orbit than the Earth is, which would normally mean it must have a slower orbital velocity, the combined mass of the Sun and the Earth working on it will mean it moves at the same orbital velocity as the Earth. L3 is not much use for spacecraft parking, being on the opposite side of the Sun to the Earth, and hence always out of radio range, unless you positioned a relay spacecraft above or below the solar orbital plane. Such an idea has been proposed to enable us to observe the other side of the Sun in order to provide early warning of solar flare activity that might later be rotated around to face the Earth. That spacecraft at L3 would also orbit the combined mass of the Earth and the Sun. It's just the Earth and the Sun would be in the opposite order. So like L1, its orbit would also be slightly higher than the Earth's orbit, but nonetheless it would end up matching the Earth's orbital velocity. And then your last two options, after L1, 2 and 3, are L4 and 5. These two points are in line with the Earth's orbit, and they always remain at 150 million kilometres to either side of the Earth, where 150 million kilometres is also the distance between the Earth and the Sun. Hence, these two points experience exactly the same gravitational influences that keep both the Sun and the Earth in orbit around their mutual barycentre. So for this reason, if you put something at L4 or L5, that object will not only match Earth's orbital velocity, but also follow Earth's exact orbit. This is the middle bit. Yep, Lagrange points. Really very exciting. They're gravitational flat spots that aren't actually flat, nor are they spots. Low-energy planetary station-keeping manoeuvres is probably closer to the mark. Anyhow... Hang on to your hats, folks, because here comes an astronomy podcast about supernovae. I know, right? Dear Cheap Astronomy, can neutrinos predict supernova explosions? We've previously expressed doubts that the recent unexpected dimming of Betelgeuse suggested it was about to go supernova. We then ended that episode by speculating that if we could observe enough supernovae all the way from pre to post blast, we might then be able to identify some genuine predictive signals of a pending supernova. And so, to the topic of today's episode, supernova neutrinos. Neutrinos are so named because they are neutrally charged and have a very tiny mass hence the enos. Neutrinos are produced in a range of nuclear reactions for both fission and fusion pathways. For example, most of the neutrinos that come to us here on Earth 
are from the fusion reactions of the sun, and there are also a few man-made ones from our nuclear fission reactors, and also there are a lot from other astronomical sources. And one of those astronomical sources are the supernova neutrinos, which have distinctive energies in the 10 to 30 mega electron volt range. Supernova neutrinos are produced en masse in the final stages of gravitational collapse of a giant star. During that collapse, the force of infalling matter overcomes electron degeneracy pressure in the star's core. This hence drives protons and electrons together, forming a much denser core of neutrons. And since the neutrons cannot be compressed any further, the whole collapse stops short and there's a bounce-back shockwave that then blows out the rest of the star. But remember, supernovae arise from giant stars, which might have a diameter greater than Mars's orbit around the Sun. So even after the core collapse, it may be several hours before that collapse-generated shockwave emerges from the star's surface, accompanied by a huge burst of photons bright enough to be seen from other galaxies. However, the neutrinos that were released at the moment of collapse almost immediately shot out of the star, since they only interact very weakly with other matter. In 1987, supernova SN 1987A exploded in the Large Magellanic Cloud. The optical detection of this event was preceded by a neutrino burst about 18 hours earlier. So even though once they'd left the star, the photons were moving at the speed of light in a vacuum, the earlier departed neutrinos were moving at nearly the speed of light in a vacuum, and so still arrived at Earth first. So, there you go. Forget about all the star-dimming stuff. If you want early signs of a pending supernova, it's all about neutrinos. Many of the major neutrino observatories across the world currently participate in S-News, the Supernova Early Warning System which is continuously scanning the skies for supernova heralding bursts of neutrinos. If S-News detects a strong signal, our electromagnetic and gravitational wave observatories across the world will lock on to that point and wait to collect data from the light burst and the gravitational wave burst that's generated by the eventually emerging shockwave. Of course, 18 hours isn't much warning. It has been proposed that there may be earlier telltale signs, at least for type 2 core collapse supernovae, in the form of smaller neutrino bursts that correspond with the final steps in element burning when hydrogen fusion switches to helium and then carbon fusion, then neon oxygen and silicon fusion until it's all over when it gets to iron. It's possible that each of these steps produces a characteristic burst of neutrinos, which could give a very accurate prediction of the timing of the subsequent supernova explosion. We can only say this is possible, since we're still waiting for the opportunity to properly monitor a supernova event to test this hypothesis. And it's going to have to be a reasonably close supernova event to get the amount of data resolution 
that we really need. The 1987 supernova we mentioned earlier was in the Large Magellanic Cloud, which is kind of next door, but what we really want is one that's inside the Milky Way. The last observed supernova in our galaxy was in 1680, although there's been a few since that no one observed directly. So, right now, everyone's poised and ready, waiting for a star in our galaxy to go kablooey, so we can observe it with our multi-messenger array of light, gravitational and neutrino observatories. But until it happens, all we can do is watch this space. This is the end bit. So, there you go. Cheap astronomy, the bleeding edge of astronomy podcasting. Heck, next week we might even do a podcast on why it's so hot on Venus, and maybe even talk about those black hole things. But until then, that's it for another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you've got a space science question or you just want to go back to episode 1 again, why not write to cheapastro at gmail.com and we'll find a new angle for you. Or at least we might rotate the reference frame. Thanks for listening. Steve Nerlich, Cheap Astronomy.